Welcome to the Clear the Shelf podcast with Chris and Chris, the show that meets at the intersection of education and entertainment to discuss online arbitrage, retail arbitrage, wholesale, and all facets of selling on Amazon. We'll bring you news, tactics, strategies, insights, stories, and interviews to help you grow your Amazon business. And now, here are your hosts, Chris Grant and Chris Rasick. What is up, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Clear the Shelf with Chris and Chris. Uh, we are going to have what I think should be a fun and enlightening episode, and for lack of a better title, we're going to call it Clear the Shelf Law School uh, with two highly unqualified professors, uh, myself, Chris Grant, and my friend, Chris Rasick. And we're going to be talking about a bunch of business laws and principles and how they can help you and maybe even how they can hurt you. Uh, and some of them are going to include things like Pareto's Principle, which happens to be one of my favorites. And I've got a great book recommendation for you guys. Uh, and at the end, I think we're going to be talking about the sunk cost fallacy, which is probably something that we'll have to do a follow up episode all on its own on. Uh, just because there's so much meat there to get to and and ways that it can um, it can hurt your business kind of long term and and while you're growing. So uh, let's go ahead and get diving in. Chris, how was uh, how was your week, man? How was it since last time we chatted? My week's good. Uh, I'm excited excited about this episode. Um, it's probably a whole lot of laws that stuff that you didn't know that you knew. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. you may not know the title of the law. But the the actual phenomenon, the explanation of the law itself, you probably more people are going to recognize those than than they realize. So oh, this yeah, should be a good absolutely. one. Uh, but my week's been good. Um, it's good to see you again. Uh, good to see you. Getting ready to uh, send my documentation in to get ungated in DVDs. Ah, it's fantastic. I'm, yeah, I'm I'm excited about it. it it's something that I completely ignored uh, because. I was under the impression I, I knew of one source to get ungated and, but it was going to cost about a thousand dollars, I think was their minimum order threshold. So it's just something I put on the back burner, you know, it, um, and just largely ignored, but using your method, uh, that you shared, it was a nugget in your discord group. Uh, I think I'm into it about 15 bucks or so. That's <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Very small fraction of what I thought it would take. Uh, to get ungated. So um, I appreciate that. It's uh, one of many nuggets that are dropped in that Discord group. So anybody oh, listening, if, if you have a chance to join, um, it's it's well worth it. It's for the cost of a cheap dinner with no alcohol or appetizers. Uh, <laughs> you'll get your money's worth multiple times. So, but uh, yeah, so since last episode, um, my week's been really good because I got to reconnect with uh, my best friend. Uh, he moved to North Carolina about 15 years ago. And, uh, so it was, it was my buddy in North Carolina, along with another friend of ours. Uh, and the three of us made up, uh, the bachelor pad. Uh, we had a, we rented a house and, and, uh, before any of us uh, were in serious relationships and you can imagine the, the hijinks and shenanigans, um, that we got into and, and told the war stories of, uh, uh, last through this last week. But, uh, Anyway, my buddy decided to come up kind of unexpected, um, the spur of the moment thing, because he got a new job at a, a large computer company down there. Um, mm -hmm. And he had been with a major hospital uh, since he moved down there. So he had about 15 years in at this hospital. Um, and he had tried 
over and over again to get into the IT department at the hospital uh, to no avail. Uh, he even got went to school, got a certification on networking and it, all this all this stuff. And they never gave him oh, a wow. job. So, yeah. So he was frustrated and you know didn't really care for his boss too much from what I hear. <laughs> so, but uh, but so he finally got the IT position that he's always wanted just for a, another employer. So and and he had a vacation planned this summer that he had to clear with his new job already. So. And then not knowing what the, the paid time off policy at the new job was, he decided he better come up before he starts this new job. So mm-hmm. um, so that was why he, uh, uh, with short notice, uh, came up here. So and so anyway, how this connects to to Amazon is uh, the, the third member of the, the trio from the Bachelor Pad. He's worked in IT for at least 10 years um, and he's super smart. He's, he's great at it. Not that he helps me with my websites, but, uh, <laughs> but, yeah, he, but he's good at it. So the one night the three of us are sitting around and, uh, you know, they talk shop a little bit, but then the conversation turned to how my buddy from North Carolina was looking forward to a Monday through Friday, eight hour a day schedule. And, uh, and most importantly to him, how they'll have weekends off. Um, so I'm kind of, I kind of got a shit eating grin on my face as the two of them are, are, are talking and, you know, they're, they're going back and forth, you know, well, you know, the weekends will go by fast and it'll be Monday before you know it. And he goes, but you know, that's much better than, you know, working 10 or 12 hours on a Saturday. And so they're kind of cutting it up back and forth. And they finally looked over at me and, and said, uh, well, what's so funny, Rasek? And, uh, I said, uh, I said, you know what? I said, since I quit my day job, my nine to five, I said, every day is Saturday for me. I said, it's been, uh, it's been about 500 in a row and counting, <laughs> you know? So, but, uh, and you and I have talked about that, you know, hashtag forever Saturday. Um, mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I, of course I make that joke to, I made that joke to my former coworkers at, at the bank when I quit just to kind of rub it in their face um, a little bit. Good natured, uh, maybe. Good natured ribbing. Yes. Yeah. Um, but you know what? It, it's, it's really more of a, um, a positive reinforcement uh, for me, you know, it, mm-hmm. it's my main motivation and, and forever Saturday, that term is basically why I did what I did. And, and at the time it was important for me to take back more of my time, mm-hmm. you know, and, or take back all of it, <laughs> you know, um, really is, is more like it. So, um, you know, it, it kind of, it kind of reinforced, you know, and, and, reminded me of why I did what I did when I went full-time with Amazon and why I left the corporate world and why I left a nine to five. Um, you know, it, it was good to get that perspective back. You know, sometimes it, it can be a gift to be pulled back from moving in, in a potentially negative direction, you know, of, of possibly becoming complacent or, you know, you're starting to take a good thing for granted. You know, it, it can be a mm-hmm. gift when you get pulled back or, or, you know, at least stopped in your tracks if you're moving in that direction. Um, you know, I, I, I kind of think of it like the, you know, the honeymoon may be over with me and my Amazon selling mm-hmm. career, but certainly doesn't mean I'm not still happily married. You know, yeah. I, I, uh, I love this job. I love being able to, you know, we were joking last episode about, you know, waking up at 10 a.m. and going to bed stupidly late and whatnot. But you know, it, it's important to not take for granted how much of your time you have and, and the, the beauty of being able to make your own schedule and, you know, 
do what you want to do when you do it. You know, I'm not, I'm not trying to make the impression that it doesn't take effort. It doesn't take work to do this, but you know, I, it's so great to, you know, kind of operate on your own terms. Do you agree? Mm -hmm. I, I do. You know, I'm <clears throat> now that I've moved from Ohio, which funny thing, when I lived in Ohio, family, friends, you know, from across the country, they were never like, Hey, Chris, can, can we come visit you in Ohio? Not, not a once, <laughs> but now that I've moved to the sunny state of Florida, once a quarter, some family member, some friend, you know, one of my wife's friends, Hey, uh, I was wondering, you know, could we come stay in that extra room that you guys have? Cause we have a, the house that we, we live in had like a mother-in-law bedroom built onto the house after it was built. And so it's got a bathroom and an exit out to the pool and things. And we recently just had someone come down and she was commenting. She was like, you know, you're, it's one o'clock in the afternoon and you know, you're here sitting and we're having a conversation and you're not, you know, looking at your watch or anything like that. She's like, you know, what's going on? I was like, I'll, I'll work at nine o'clock tonight or I'll work at, you know, maybe I'll get up a little extra early tomorrow and I'll put the time back in. Uh, and I don't know, it is, it is a privilege to be able to put in the effort when we feel like putting in the effort and not, you know, they, her and her husband, they own uh, some retail shops back up in Ohio. And, uh, you know, they've got a, they're chained to their store hours. Uh, you know, unfortunately, our store hours are 24 7, 365 because Amazon just handles it for us. Uh, so I, it is nice to be reminded that even though our honeymoons may be over with Amazon, uh, it is nice to kind of, have that little anniversary check-in every now and again, and just remember, you know, this special relationship that's been kindled uh, thanks to uh, Jeff Bezos and, and Amazon. Yeah. You know, it's, you can kind of remind yourself that, uh, you know, if you, if you have kids, you don't ever have to miss a, a little league game and your, uh, you know, any school function or, or any of that stuff, you know, there, there are a whole lot of perks that, uh, that come along with this. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Now, I think that that those stories take us take us into our first law uh, really, really well. Parkinson's law. Uh, and if you're not familiar with Parkinson's law, it is the law that work expands to fill the time available for its completion. And if you're, you know, if you're still a desk jockey or, uh, you know, a cubicle dweller, uh, and again, that's said with love. It's not said with uh, with animosity or anything like that. But you know how that goes. Uh, if if the boss gives you eight weeks to get a project done, you know that it's going to take eight weeks. And then you're going to be like, oh, you know, hey, boss, uh, I, I need I need two or three more days just to just to put the cherry on top of this Sunday. Uh, and and that's fine, you know, but when when you're self-employed, when you work for yourself or, you know, even, even more, when you have people relying on you, you've got preppers who work for you and you've got some other people. And, uh, you know, we've got some people who do some things for us. Now we have not only ourselves to fend for, but we're also fending for these other folks. Uh, if we allow work to fill all the time that's available, well, something bad's going to happen eventually. Uh, and, 
I'm kind of curious, what are, I mean, we could talk about what everyone else and maybe people like, you know, Stephen Covey and, uh, you know, time management folks talk about, but I guess, what are some things that have actually worked for you to kind of combat Parkinson's law? I think the, the best thing you can do to combat Parkinson's law is simply uh, shorten your, your deadlines. You know, mm-hmm. if, if you're giving yourself, you know, four hours to, to source, you know, a thousand dollars in inventory, make it two hours or make it one hour. Uh, you know, it, it's, it puts self-imposed deadlines, uh, you know, kind of move them up. And, and I mean, you'll certainly be surprised at, at how much production you can actually get done, you know, and uh, it's not like there's a, a boss breathing down your throat. If you don't get it done, <laughs> you know, it's, mm-hmm. if you only get seven fifty done in one hour, that's still way better than a thousand dollars in four hours. Yeah. Know? And it's, you know, whether you're, you know, if you're a writer and, and, you know, you want to put that deadline on yourself, you know, Hey, I want to write, you know, 2000 words in, you know, again, four hours, bump that to two hours, you know, mm-hmm. you'll be surprised at, at how efficient you become simply to meet a deadline. Um, I think that's probably the, the far and away, the number one method on, on combating Parkinson's law. Yeah. I like that. I also, I think, I think one of the questions that could come out of this is, okay, well, you know, what's the best time management uh, technique to use? Do I use Pomodoro? Do I use, you know, what, what, uh, heck, I don't know. There's so many out there. What else could I use? Uh, And I think the, I think the only right answer to that is you have to use the one that you actually use on a regular basis. Uh, because this hit or miss with, you know, managing your time uh, kind of leaves everything messy and, and not completed. Um, so whether it's the Pomodoro technique or if you're a post-it note person, uh, you know, I so I'll tell you what I do. And it's not the best, but, you know, it gets the gets the work done. But on a eight and a half by 11 sheet of computer paper every single night before I wrap things up. I just write out my to-do list for the next day. Uh, And my to-do list is stuff that I really want to get done in the first half of the day. Uh, That way I can leave the second half of the day open for uh, tasks that are not so taxing on the mind. So like for me, sourcing is kind of Zen, you know, you can sit there and I can kind of veg out in front of the computer for lack of a better word. And I can source, uh, you know, but if I want to write a blog post or cut a video or anything like that, I try to move that up to the first half. Uh, you know, there are some people who break things down in 15 minute increments in their calendar, which I'm not that type A, so I, I just can't do it. Uh, you know, but if that's what works for you, implement it on a daily basis uh, and then, you know, get it done. I mean, you know, that's kind of. Yeah kind of the only way to get around that. Yeah, I think it's it's important. I've been reading a lot about, uh, you know, kind of catering to your personal preferences. You know, j- just be honest with yourself and, and how you work, you know, and, and if you're not sure what method will work for you, test it out and, and be honest with the results, you know, and, and you know, pick the one that, that leaves you uh, the most productive. Um, I'm not, I don't have it fully fleshed out, but the, a new book I'm reading is talking about flow. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's a, it's a concept, which I kind of gravitate towards this is when, when I kind of get into a zone, I just work as long as I possibly can. 
you know, while it's, it's clicking, you know, it's, those are, you know, unfortunately it happens to be two 30 in the morning too often, but so be it, you know, but, but I just kind of, when I get into the space I need to be, to be the most productive, I shut everything off and just let it, let it run its course, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and, and that seems to work well for me, you know, unless I have some epiphany, uh, you know, down the road and (laughs) completely change or, or realize, you know, that I'm, not very efficient, but, you know, but I know that's, that's my tendency is, you know, Mm -hmm. it's kind of, it's kind of spurts and, and that kind of lends itself well to how I unstructure my day. (laughs) It's not really structuring it, you know, but yeah, I I have big gaps where I can, I can go play golf if I want to, or I can go, you know, to take my daughter to gymnastic class. And like you said before, I'll just work later. You know, there, there's plenty of time, plenty of windows uh, available to me. So I, I find that method works well. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I like I like that method. You know, you you sprint a little bit and then you jog for a little while. Uh, I, I think that's OK. Um, you know, and I, I like to leave a little bit of time for maybe a midday nap every now and again. Uh, not every day, but, you know, every now and again, um, you know, and something you said was interesting. You said that you often get uh, on kind of that hot streak late at night. It's been a long time since I read the article, but there is an article that that is uh, backed by a couple of scientific studies that tell you there's a reason for people who are maybe a little bit more creative have a streak later at night, typically. And so that actually doesn't surprise me with you. Um, if you find it, uh, send that to me. I'd love, <laughs> I'd love to read it. Every, you know, everything is is about getting up early and, you know, like, all the CEOs get up at four o'clock in the morning and, and, you know, to, to us night owls, that it's kind of discouraging. You know, I need somebody yeah. great to, to stay up till four in the morning so I can idolize them. Elon Musk. He actually just talked about it. So oh, there we, you go. yeah, there you go. He was talking, he, I recently watched him uh, chat with some people and he was, he was praising the work ethic of another country. And he talked about how, uh, you know, here in the U.S., people don't like burning the midnight oil. But I want to say it was China he was talking about. But he's like the people in China, he's like, they won't they won't just be burning the midnight oil. They'll be burning the 3 a.m. oil. And he's like, and that's when a lot of the times I get my best work done is late at night. Um, And, uh, you know, he'll he'll go for. 18 hours a day sometimes and and that'll be you know right up until two three in the morning uh you know and then i'll sleep on the factory floor even though he's a <laughs> the richest guy in the world so but he's a he's of a he's a bird of a different feather that's true now if we now, could just kind of modify that with uh is, is it france that takes like the three hour lunch and they drink wine and eat cheese and then take a nap <laughs> but if i if we kind of meld the two together that's i'm in Right now, Parkinson's law, I think, goes goes together really well with the next one we just we talked about before the show, which is the Hawthorne effect. And the Hawthorne effect is is interesting. And I think there are some ways to uh, to use this to your advantage, to kind of use it as a lever to make sure that Parkinson's law does not overcome your life or, or your business. So. And what the Hawthorne effect is, is it's a phenomenon in which participants alter their behavior 
as being, uh, sorry, as a result of being observed. Uh, and Chris found a, a kind of a cool study here. So uh, a study of hand washing among medical staff found that when the staff knew they were being watched, compliance with hand washing was 55% greater than when they were not being watched. Uh, and so, you know, you're on your best behavior, essentially, when your corporate overlords are, are checking in on you and you know that. So I was thinking about how, how can you use this personally? And then I've got some questions for you too. So we talked in one of the previous episodes about uh, how I've noticed that people are doing study sessions or they're doing work sessions uh, while they're live on TikTok or uh, Instagram or something like that. And people are watching them. Okay. And it's it seen, I don't know. At I wanted to make fun of these people at first. I really did. Like, you know, how narcissistic that you think people want to watch you study, uh, you know, at medical school or people want to watch you, you know, write your screenplay at Starbucks. Uh, but then I really started thinking about it. And I was like, you know what? That's really kind of a great idea. You can, you don't have to pay anybody to check in on you, uh, but you can be accountable to people who can, you know, I mean, they can make fun of you. They can, you know, do whatever in this live stream and you have to be there working. Otherwise they call you out. You know, you take a moment to read the, uh, read the comments and, you know, people can say, Hey, you're supposed to be working, like get back to work. Uh, and then there are also those services. There are services that you can pay to be a part of where you work in a community via a Zoom call or something like that. And you have 20 minutes on and three minutes off and you work in these little spurts. And so I think that you could actually hack the Hawthorne effect to your advantage if you're not somebody who is naturally motivated or, you know, you do allow uh, work to fill up all the time that's available. Uh, and so I'm curious, Chris, have you done anything? And I guess, what are your thoughts on the Hawthorne effect? Well, I, first, I have a couple of points about the, uh, the hand washing study uh, mm -hmm. about medical staff. My, my first point is, ew. <laughs> <laughs> how is that? Not, and number two, how is that number not 100%? Like, why? you know, that's one of those things that you learn that, that you just, you can't unlearn. And I, you know, I, I just assumed medical staff would, I assume that number was a hundred percent. I'm not, I'm not happy finding out it's less than a hundred. And unfortunately uh, now, if there's ever like a MRSA outbreak at a hospital, you go back to this study and you're like, Oh, well now, I mean, it makes total sense. This probably should be more common. Yeah. Uh, you know, that, that ranks up there with, you know, the, the, the study I read about the remote control in hotel rooms mm -hmm. uh, forever altered my, uh, my, my behavior. And, uh, and then why you close the lid uh, uh, to the toilet when you flush it, that very yeah. disturbing, uh, disturbing evidence. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, the, the Hawthorne effect, th this can be either way. It could be a positive and it can be a negative as it relates to, uh, you know, the solopreneur maybe. Um, you know, I, th I think most, a lot of solopreneurs, you know, they, you, 
you become a solopreneur because you have that drive and, and a lot of them are self-motivated. So maybe this doesn't apply to everybody, but um, it, it's, it's curious, uh, you know, this is actually a study that I'd like to read, you know, because it, it, to find out what people do, I'd love to see the comparison between the groups, you know, the, mm -hmm. the one that, that knew they were being observed and the one that, that, uh, you know, was told they weren't being observed. Um, cause I know that, I know that myself, you know, it, it's, I actually, this, where I'm sitting here, I've actually recently turned it. And so now my wife, if she walks by, she can see my computer monitors. <laughs> so, oh, very smart. Yeah. So, I, I mean, it's kind of, I kind of did it just to, to save space. Cause like an L shaped desk kind of move it, you know, kind of free up some room uh, through the middle of the room is, is mainly why I did it. But uh, yeah, it does have a bit of a Hawthorne effect because uh, you know, my screen is, is visible to her now, but, um, and then I mentioned, uh, uh, we touched on this last episode too, uh, but the story that Neville Medora uh, told about his co-working sessions. Mm -hmm. you know, he, he would invite people over uh, with their laptops and, and basically they'd all just work at the same table, but he would make sure that somebody sat on the same side of the table as him uh, because he knows if he's not checked, he's going to scroll Facebook or he's going to jump on Reddit and he's, you know, he's going to be distracted. Um, so he finds that he's far more productive if he knows that somebody can see his screen. Um, you know, this, uh, uh, you know, just knowing, knowing that your boss is there, think it back to my, uh, you know, the corporate job, uh, you know, you can, I've actually got good enough to where I could notice the type of footsteps that were coming towards me down the aisle, <laughs> you know, and so th that determined, uh, uh, which tab on my computer I, I clicked on real quick, uh, you know, but, uh, we know, we know this, uh, deep down, you know, the Hawthorne effect, you know, you're, you're, you're on your best behavior, um, you know, especially if, if you think someone of authority is watching, mm -hmm. you. you know, this is this is basically um, about employee engagement, um, you know, and, and enhancing performance and productivity. Um, so by becoming a solopreneur, you kind of lose that effect, you know, because there is no boss there. There's no one, um, you know, when, no one to put you on your best behavior. You know, you have to manage your own time. Um, and, and if you find yourself struggling with that, like, and I'll be honest, I did it too. You know, it, it's like I mentioned when I quit my day job and I went full time with Amazon, I was all about taking my time back and I took full advantage of it <laughs> you know? mm -hmm. and, uh, um, you know, kind of enjoyed it and, and, you know, steadily I'm, I'm realizing and kind of putting, filling up more of my day with, with more productivity. And, and of course, and I'm honest with myself, I know I could be far more efficient than I am now. So um, it's not like I have to give up time, you know, to, to put more work in, you know, I, I kind of tweak, tweak the, the, the short burst that I work in uh, a little better and get more done uh, that way. But, you know, you have to, you have to be disciplined. And, and that's uh, uh, something I struggle with. And I'm sure other people uh, can uh, struggle with from time to time. But, oh, you know, the main, the main things to combat that is, is, you know, time management. And, uh, you know, again, kind of combo this with the, with Parkinson's, uh, the law, not the syndrome, um, you know, and make shorter deadlines, you know, just kind of give yourself mm -hmm. a, a shorter window and, uh, you know, get that burst of productivity. And then, you know, as it relates to the Hawthorne effect, be honest about your productivity, be honest about your output. 
and, and you know, and kind of go from there and, and use time management and, and, you know, an honest measurement to determine, you know, how, how you can be more efficient, I guess. Yeah. I like that. I, we may have to do an episode on, on OKRs, which is kind of something Google came up with, uh, sort of like KPIs, but just a, a little twist on them. But uh, I think probably more effective, but we'll, we'll do that in another episode. And one of the other things is you could use the Hawthorne effect to your advantage as your business gets larger and maybe you have uh, virtual assistants, maybe you have prep help. Uh, and so I, this next thing that I say is probably going to sound a little creepy and I don't mean it to. All right. But, you know, with a, a virtual assistant, you know, they might be on the other side of the world doing work for you. And so, of course, if we were not a connected society, it would be impossible to be able to check in on them. But that's not the case anymore. You can use the Hawthorne effect to your uh, to your advantage with things like Hubstaff. That's going to take screenshots of their screen and, and tell you how productive that they've been. Uh, you know, maybe maybe you've got staff locally, uh, and you know, like your prep help. Maybe you throw up a camera wherever they're working so that you know they know. Okay, well, you know, someone can check in on me at any time or. You know, I mean, heck, you could just walk through the, the prep area and, and they'll know, uh, you know, but some of the folks who I've seen with much larger warehouses, they do. They put up several cameras and yes, it's about security. But the other thing is, is, well, they could also be watching over their employees at, at you know, any time. And it gives a little bit of that, you know, hey, there's a there's an eye in the sky watching over me. I better not count the cards while I'm on the clock. Uh, and, you know, it might sound a little creepy, but as long as you, you know, talk about it and say, you know, here's why it's being done, et cetera, it, it would probably just be a good thing uh, between you and your employees and, uh, and productivity because, you know, everyone's got to hit certain numbers or for things to make sense. So, yeah. And not to mention employees, want to achieve their goals too you know mm -hmm. they, they want to be a good a good employee you know so uh, you know simple you know aside from uh you know monitoring with cameras and and hub staff you know just give regular feedback you know and and communicate with them you know they uh, most employees want to know they're doing a good job um or at least you know know that you recognize that that they're being productive and and doing a, a decent job you know so communication is key and and you know just letting them know, going over, just going over spreadsheets like I do with my VAs. You know, I'll kind of take some time at the beginning of their day um, and we'll just say, hey, let's go over a couple of these and, and I'll tell them things that I pointed out. If, if, you know, if I kick something out because I didn't like it, I'll let them know why. Or, you mm -hmm. know, if there's a certain store that I don't want them to source from, I'll, I'll let them know why or, you know, let them know what that store is or, you know, just something with too many variations, you know, say, hey, this is go on to Keepa, go to the variations tab and then sort by rating and, and, you know, feedback. And, you know, you can kind of tell, you can get a good idea of what's selling and what's not out of the variations. So, mm -hmm. yeah. And that's, that's going to lead to more positive results from the employees and, and, you know, it's certainly not going to hurt job satisfaction as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, and I know this is going to be for another episode as well, but Hiring and managing virtual assistants, I think, is something that we should probably 
probably discuss at some point because I've got I've got some big feelings on hiring and managing virtual assistants uh, that I I think probably a lot of Amazon sellers either need to hear, especially if they've never hired or or managed uh, you know anybody before. Um, but let's let's go to the next one and this one. This next one is something that I think, A, everybody absolutely has it at some point. Um, but B, it's also something that people who've been down the path for a while, I think, uh, continue to have. I know that it's something that I, I still struggle with today, you know, a decade after becoming an Amazon seller, and that's imposter syndrome. Um, and, you know, even if you've never heard of imposter syndrome, I know you know what it is that feeling of being in, inadequate, uh, you know, even if you've been successful, uh, you know, chronic self-doubt. Uh, and I don't know, I think that's, that chronic self-doubt can come from two things. Number one, it can just be something that you self-impose. But the other thing is that the very nature of going into business for yourself as a solopreneur or an entrepreneur, uh, you know, the 10-year the uh, I guess the 10 year view of a business is probably going to be somewhat like this, but the day-to-day -day view of a business is a roller coaster. It is up and down. And one day you're the smartest person in the world. And the next day you're an absolute moron. Uh, and so that probably doesn't help either. Uh, so I don't know this one, this one is kind of a, a tough one. Uh, like I make videos, uh, you know, on the internet all the time. I, uh, you know, I sell on Amazon. I do some, some other things we were, we've got a track record of success with what I do in my business, but there will be times quite often where I'm like, you know what, one of these days, everyone is going to find out that I am full of it. Uh, you know, uh, and so I guess, how have you maybe overcome that or, or at least managed it? Um, have I? I? I'm not sure I have yet. <laughs> I, uh, you know, I was good. My, my thought was, you know, a good example of imposter syndrome is, is me sitting here as a podcast host. Um, you know, it, or, and, it, you know, this is on YouTube, you know, and, and probably the, the second least likely thing that I wanted to do. I mean, you know, maybe posting video of me breakdancing on Reddit might be the, the, the one thing that I would not want to do before putting my video of myself on YouTube. Um, mm -hmm. Terrifying to me. Um, but this is a, this is a tough one. You know, this is, and um, uh, it, it can come in multiple ways, you know, especially as, as you start getting more, uh, you know, more income sources, you know, if you're trying to branch out and you're, you're doing multiple things, you know, like, um, you know, we're doing the podcast here. I certainly I'm struggling with imposter syndrome. Um, Amazon seller definitely struggled with imposter syndrome. Um, you know, it, the tough thing is that there's no protocols, you know, there, there's no measuring stick because you're, you're kind of figuring this out on your own. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it, it gets into, um, being in unfamiliar territory, like we talked on, on the previous episode, you know, about being, being okay with being uncomfortable, you know, because it's unfamiliar and you're out of your comfort zone. Uh, 
it, that's when it's easy for the self-doubt to kind of creep in. Um, but if, if you think about it, you know, really, we, we have to accept the, the process of gaining experience. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it, you know, it, imposter syndrome, it, it's kind of rooted in perfectionism. You know, it, it's nothing we do. Can we wait until we're an absolute expert? You know, we have to we have to accept the fact that we're going to gain experience as we go. You know, we mm -hmm. can't do it from a position of omnipotence, you know, on on a, on a certain certain project or a certain, uh, uh, you know, thing that we're, we're trying to do, like whether it be selling on Amazon or selling on eBay or going on YouTube or, or you know, writing a blog, putting yourself out there. That's, you know, that's another big one. Um, you know, it, I remember the the one good story from uh, one of many good stories from the motivation myth that we've talked about before. Um, he told the story of he the guy was an editor. I think it was for the New Yorker. But if it wasn't the New York New Yorker, it was a major, major magazine. And he said this editor that he knew was probably the greatest writer that he knew personally or that he had read. He was mm -hmm. a fantastic writer. So, but the guy was an editor of a magazine, right? So he had to sit there every single day and read over, edit, and then eventually okay and publish inferior work. It was, it was work that, he, that this guy, this editor could have written much better himself, but he had to approve it and, and let it fly, let it go into print because that was his job and the writers that, you know, that were writing it, that was their job. You know, mm -hmm. I, I, that was really interesting to, to, he basically had to accept the fact that it wasn't perfect over and right. over again, day in, day out, you know, every single article, every single day. Um, and that was, I thought that was pretty powerful for people struggling with imposter syndrome and, and mm -hmm. you know, worried about, everything being perfect and all the, you know, everything around them being just right before they start something or before they do something. Um, yeah. I thought that was, it was really good. That's that stuck with me. Yeah. I think, I think that is a, a good, it is a good story and an excellent book. If you haven't read it yet, uh, the motivation bit is really, really good. Yeah. I heard a, I heard an interesting quote and I, I'm never going to remember who said it, but uh, it was something to the point that, the only person who never feels like an imposter is an actual imposter. Uh, so if it's, you know, if you're just starting on Amazon or maybe you're, you know, been in it for a little while or starting any business really, and you just happen to come across this, this podcast, uh, I guess get used to it. You know, that, that feeling of, of being an imposter of not knowing what you're doing, but the cool thing about being an entrepreneur or, uh, or an Amazon seller is <clears throat> if you feel like an imposter for whatever reason, because you don't know the answer to something, because you're not sure of how to do something in particular, the cool thing is, is that there's a community of people out there who want to help. Uh, and so I think one of the best ways to overcome imposter syndrome is, is even though you're not perfect, well, you can be pretty daggone good about finding the answer uh, to just about anything. And, and that can kind of help you overcome that imposter syndrome. Uh, but also, 
just get used to it because it's uh, it. Unfortunately, I don't think that it ever necessarily goes away 100 percent. Uh, now, let's talk about the next principle, which is actually probably one of my absolute favorites, uh, and that is the Pareto Principle. Uh, and if you've never heard of the Pareto Principle, you've probably heard of the 80-20 rule, which is what this is also called. Uh, and if you want an incredible book on the Pareto Principle, I would highly suggest that you read 80-20 Sales and Marketing by Perry Marshall, even if you are not into sales and marketing. It's an absolutely excellent book uh, about how powerful the Pareto Principle is. And what the, what the principle states is that for many outcomes, roughly 80% of the consequences come from 20% of the causes, uh, or 80% of the output comes from 20% of the input. Um, and this whole kind of idea was, uh, was put together by a guy by the name of Joseph Duran, uh, and named it after an Italian economist, but mathematically the rule is kind of a power law distribution and it works just about everywhere. So let's, let's talk about a couple examples. I bet that for most businesses, inventory based businesses, 80% of their profits probably come from 20% of their SKUs. And 80% of profit is probably driven by 20% of the decisions made in a boardroom. Uh, 80% of your profits is probably derived from 20% of the efforts that you put in, uh, no matter what. And you can take that even further and you can do the 80-20 of the 80-20, which I want to say is the 96-4 rule, and you can go down and down and down. Uh, but one of the things that I think is really powerful about the 80-20 principle is that you could, for example, take all of your inventory and you could figure out which items, uh, what 20% are making up 80% of your income or sales on Amazon. And then the cool thing that you can do with that is you can extrapolate the data from those 20% of SKUs and you can figure out what they have in common. Uh, and then you get to turn that into, okay, well, if, if these all have this in common, so for example, if you've got, let's say you have 100 ASINs and you say, well, these 20 are my best ASINs. These are the ones that are driving 80% of sales. And they all have a couple things in common. Maybe their sales rank is between thirty and fifty thousand on Amazon, uh, and maybe their their price corridor is what I like to call it is within ten or fifteen percent over the past ninety days. Well, the first thing that I would do is I would then go out and I would find those other items that are ranked between thirty and fifty thousand and have a price corridor of plus or minus 10%. And chances are, I should be able to add to those 20% of ASINs that are actually doing really, really well. Uh, I, don't, I don't do this enough, but something that I really wish that I would do on a more regular basis is an audit of SKUs, an audit of how I spend my time, uh, an audit of what streams of income actually are creating 80% of my income 
and cutting out the other stuff. Uh, I think that I would probably see growth happen a lot faster, but I know that I don't, I don't do it as much as I should. Um, have you ever done this in your business? No, not officially. You know, this is one of those, uh, I know what it is. Mm -hmm. I know it occurs an incredible amount of time. I, I mean, try to find something that doesn't have the Pareto principle in effect. You know, um, I, I feel sometimes I feel like uh, when I'm getting real scatterbrained, I think more I'm operating more in a Fibonacci sequence, just kind of spinning <laughs> around. But but uh, it, the Pareto principle is everywhere. You know, like, like you said, it, it. I mean, you can take anything, you know, take uh, suppliers, 20 percent of your suppliers. I know for a fact, I just looked at my supplier profitability on, on inventory labs and there was still there was only a handful right at the top. And if I didn't actually run the numbers, but it sure looked like about 20% of them was, was 80% of my profits. Um, you know, I have one store that, that the top one on the list was, was almost 40% right there. So, mm -hmm. so, you know, it's going to shake out pretty darn close and, and basically qualify uh, under that 80, 20 rule. Um, no, I, I don't. Cause I, I try not to, to audit myself. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> cause that's, you know, it's it, uncomfortable. It, yeah. I mean, you, you know, you, you're freewheeling it and, and, you know, um, kind of, kind of winging it, but, um, there, there's a lot of, you know, th this is the 80, 20 rule. It comes out. It, it's even amazing how many different topics and genres of books that you can read that bring this up, you know, obviously the, the productivity stuff, you know, if, if you could analyze, you know, because if you think about it, if, if 80% of your income is coming from 20% of your activities, if you took a serious, honest look at what you do and analyzed it and took that 20% and cut out most of the 80%, I mean, how much more money could you make, you know, yeah. and, and then you'll create a new dynamic, but that new dynamic can also be analyzed and cut down and, and, you know, rearrange to make yourself even more efficient, you know? So there's just mm -hmm. multiple layers to this on, on how it can improve your income, your productivity, you know, all the positives that you're looking for in, in this business. You know, while, while we're talking about this, it's actually, here's a business idea. And I know that I will not run with this. Uh, I mean, I, Chris, unless you end up wanting to run with it, but here's a business idea for somebody out there who knows Amazon uh, pretty well is, and of course this would probably need to come with some sort of, uh, of contract so that, you know, people can trust you and things like that. But a, I would pay a service that would look through my ASINs or my inventory lab reports or whatever and give me a breakdown of what my top 20% SKUs have in common. Uh, you know, what, you know, what are their average sales ranks? What are their average selling prices? What, uh, you know, what are the average number of sellers and so on so that I could really narrow it down and say, okay, this is what I need to focus on. I'm going to carve out a little niche in, in these kinds of products, and I'm going to really hammer home on them. Uh, it'd be a little bit more difficult to, you know, audit someone's time, uh, you know, but you could audit someone's book of business essentially on Amazon uh, and probably give them some really great feedback on what kind of things to focus on that have done well for them. Uh, so if anybody takes that and runs with it, let me know and I'll be your first client. Um, 
be an excellent uh, coaching technique, you know, yeah. to make them make them analyze their not only inventory, but their activities throughout their day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, now let's talk about the last one and probably the one that we could go on for the most. I've got I know that I've got some strong feelings on this one. And this one is the sunk cost fallacy. Uh, which I think is actually for Amazon sellers, I think is a massive stumbling block, especially for newer sellers. But I have had conversations with sellers who have been in the game for two, three, four years, and this is still a stumbling block. Uh, and if you're not familiar with the sunk cost fallacy, it's the phenomenon whereby a person is reluctant to abandon a particular strategy or a course of action because you've heavily invested in it, even when it's overly clear that if you were to let go of this strategy, uh, this course of action or this ASIN, uh, that it would actually be much better for you, much better for your business. So, Chris, what I want to know from you, what are some when have you succumbed to the sunk cost fallacy in your business and how did you overcome it? Uh, well, there was that, that blonde back in 2007. Oh, you said in my business, I'm <laughs> sorry, but I, she was horrible for me, but I had so much invested in it, but uh, no, I'm sorry. Business related. Um, <laughs> you know, I, most commonly I fight this with items that I found that have tanked, mm -hmm. uh, in their pricing, especially products that I find through my own research. You know, there okay. tends to be tends to be a little, I don't know, sentimentality, uh, you know, to those you, you kind of take a I take a little bit more ownership of them. And so I'm a little bit more reluctant to drop the price and just get out of what turned out to be a bad buy. I'm a little reluctant to admit that it's turned into a bad buy mm -hmm. <laughs> because I was so proud of it and so excited when I found it. You know, you kind of licking your chops, rubbing your hands together. Um, so it can be hard to accept that you know, it, it just happened to pop up on a lead list a couple of days after you found it, uh, through your own hard work. Um, but you know, you have to, you can't get attached to it. You can't, you know, you're not married to these products and, and, you know, you have to remember that if, if you can just get those sourcing dollars back, you can put it into a product that's not going to tank, you know, that's not going to be, um, it's going to have a little more staying power for you. It happens to me all the time. It's something I fight constantly, um, mm -hmm. you know, especially, especially early on, you know, when you only have so many SKUs and, uh, you know, you could probably rattle off the vast majority of what's in stock at any given time, you know, cause you're, <laughs> you're just all about it. You're checking your inventory and, you know, checking your pricing and, and, you know, just kind of helicopter, uh, uh, you know, do being a helicopter parent over your own, uh, SKUs. So, but, uh, but yeah, you, yeah, you really have to, you, you got to know when you just, when it's the smart decision, you know, it may hurt a little bit, but you know, don't, don't forget what the, the main goal is, you know, is, is to turn a profit and turn, you know, turn that inventory over, get your sourcing dollars back, get whatever profit you can mm -hmm. and, and, you know, turn it over into something else and, and just keep moving. Yeah. So it's tough. And this is this is something that I think is one of the toughest things for folks. I've had conversations with people who've had 
inventory for 18 months or more, you know, where the price is tanked and if they sell it, it's going to be, you know, at a loss. And then my conversation goes to, well, you know, listen, you've had this product for 18 months. How much have you paid in storage fees for this particular product? And even if you sold it at what you thought you were going to sell it at or the price you're holding at, would you actually make money? And in a lot of cases, the answer to that question is actually no. I, you know, based on how much I've paid in storage fees, how much I've paid to Amazon, I'm actually not going to break even on this if I sell it for the full price that I wanted. And once that realization kicks in, it's like, oh, well, I better just get rid of this so that I stop going even further into the hole. Um, and so here's a couple of ways that I think that you can overcome uh, being a being a slave to the sunk cost fallacy because it's it really is it's just bad for business. It's bad for the bottom line. It's bad for cash flow. Uh, so you've got to limit emotional ties to ideas, products, or processes. Uh, we can leave emotional ties for religion and politics, right? Uh, you know, but no, we've got to, you know, if an idea doesn't work, if a process isn't working, if a, a skew isn't working, you just got to realize that it, it it's not you. Okay. It's, it's that product. Uh, and you just got to let it go. Uh, the other thing that I like to think about, think about or tell people is you need to live by a malleable set of rules. Now, not something, not a set of rules that you just bend and break whenever you feel like it, but there can be reasons for bending and breaking them. So I'll give an example of one of mine. One of mine is, is that I have a repricing strategy where uh, I match the buy box and I have a minimum ROI of 15% on my products for day number one through 60. And unless there is, some reason that I shouldn't do that. So let's say, for example, that I buy a $1 product and I can make 10 cents on it, but I know I could sell a thousand a month. Okay. Uh, I might bend my rules for that, especially if there's like no prep. And, you know, there are a lot of other things that would need to be taken into account for me to take a 10% ROI uh, on a $1 item. But it's possible that I would do it if the rules, you know, are there. Uh, now at day number 60 on my inventory, I go from a 15% ROI to a 0% ROI. So I'll take anything that I can get even down to a break even. And then at day number 90, my inventory goes into a liquidation strategy. And uh, what will happen is I will take a 20% loss on the product uh, just to get my capital back and try to get it to sell as fast as possible. And at day number 90, I also start undercutting the buy box, uh, you know, and tanking the price as hard as it has to go to get a sale and get that inventory cleared out of there. Uh, now, that rule is also malleable. If for some reason I know that there's a product that's only going to sell once every three or four months, but I make $150 on a $30 buy cost, well, I'm going to, I'm going to bend that rule a little bit. Uh, 
And so I think I think having a malleable set of rules that you stick to and adhere to is important. Uh, another one is remembering the big picture. Uh, make sure that you're slashing things that are not getting you closer to the goal. Uh, if they're not pushing you forward, they're they're a, a anchor holding you back. Uh, and then I think one of the biggest things, and this goes back a little bit to um, to the imposter syndrome, is you've got to realize that mistakes are going to happen. Uh, and as long as you learn from them, then a mistake is not a failure. It's just it's just a mistake. It's actually an opportunity to get stronger, get better, uh, you know, faster, you know, more agile in the future than it is anything else. And it might hurt a little bit. Uh, you know, it, it does suck to take an L, but uh, as long as we actually, you know, move forward from that with a little bit of more knowledge in our tool belt, uh, we should actually, you know, come out ahead in the long run. Yeah. And, and also remember the, the Pareto principle, you know, it's, it's simply if that, that ASIN that you're falling in love with isn't part of the 20% of your ASINs that are producing 80% of your income, ASINs have to fall into that bottom 80%, you mm-hmm. know, and it, it could be for any reason, you know, it could be just bad luck, bad timing or whatnot, but just know that, you know, there's only a portion of your, your inventory, you know, let the Pareto principle help you get over the sunk cost fallacy, you know, and just kind of knowing that the numbers are going to shake out and, and that ratio is going to be there for whatever reason, you know, and, and just like you said that you got to remove the emotional part of it out of it. Absolutely. Anything, uh, anything we missed on this episode, this, uh, this one, this one's a bit heady, but uh, these are some, (laughs) these are some things I enjoyed talking about. You know, it's funny as as we're, as I was doing the research for this, you know, this is all stuff these are just official titles to, to a lot of the stuff. In fact, I do all of this, just kind of, you know, analyzing and, and, you know, myself as an Amazon seller and analyzing my operations and, and whatnot, you know, I might not have, you know, I might not know the title of it at, at, at the specific time, but, you know, as we went into, and I dove into each one of these, you know, it, it, it didn't take too much effort to figure out exactly how that rule or that effect applies to my business mm-hmm. and my operation. It's it, really interesting. I, I hope I hope everybody listening found it uh, interesting as well. Yeah, I hope so too. And and hopefully you won't have to, you know, take a business class to uh, to understand these things. These things are <laughs> I know that the names sound a little a little funky and things, but uh, but these are probably things most people have thought about or heard of in some other way. Um, so I think that should uh, we should wrap up the episode there. I do think we've got a couple of things out of this episode that we're probably going to need to follow up with. Uh, for example, I think we need to do a whole episode on virtual assistants and how to hire them, how to train them, how to manage them. Uh, because I've, like I said, I've got some big thoughts there. Uh, so that one will be coming up here pretty soon. Um, yes, if I may, uh, I do have a good quote of the week. Uh, oh, pertaining wonderful. to law school, and and it's specifically it's, it's probably more towards imposter syndrome uh, mm-hmm. than anything else, um, you know, and, and imposter syndrome being that self doubt and and you know essentially fear. You know, um, I found this great quote, and it goes, uh, "If you can't beat fear, 
just do it scared. Oh, I like that. Do you remember who that was from? <laughs> now that that one is Glennon Doyle Melton. Okay. Um, and I, but I actually read uh, not the first part. Uh, uh, I know there was a different intro, but I read "Just Do It Scared," and and I ended up highlighting it in the Kindle book that I was reading. Um, it, it was in a blogging book as well. So I I kind of did some research and then I traced it back to to Glennon Doyle Mel- Melton. But I thought that was great. You know, it, it it goes right along with, you know, done is better than perfect, like we talked about. And, and you know, that imposter syndrome, being scared that, that you know, you're going to be found out to be a fraud or, you know, whatever, you know, made up things are going through your head that, that may keep you from uh, moving forward and, and being successful. So, yeah, just do it scared. I love it. I really, really like that one. <clears throat> Yeah, that's a great that's a great one to end the week off with. Just do it scared. Uh, kind of goes along with one of my favorite sayings. Well, embrace the suck. You know, uh, <laughs> they kind of go hand in hand. But uh, that's it for this week, guys. We'll be back next week with another fresh episode for you guys. Uh, until then, uh, have a great week. Good selling. And Chris, thanks for being here again this week, man. I will see you uh, next week. Sounds great. Thanks for listening to Clear the Shelf with Chris and Chris. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a screenshot on your phone and share to Facebook, Instagram, or your favorite FBA group. And be sure to tag me and let me know why you liked it and what you'd like to hear more from us in the future. Also, I'd like to give you some free gifts for listening. Head over to rabbittrailchallenge.com and repricerchallenge.com for some free courses to further your business. Thanks for listening.